Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 27, Final Fantasy 7, episode 15, and back with me, my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, Wes. Hey, good to be here. Lots to discuss tonight, huh? My goodness, there really, really is. And so we were very excited to be talking about the Temple of the Ancients this time. It's two very specific and annoying uh, bosses who did take me out, and I did want to talk a little bit about addiction and video games and also uh, how sort of uh, motivated one is to even uh, to die, re-strategize, maybe spend time leveling up, and to like say even maybe start to correct a character flaw of trying to rush through things and being more diligent because the game rewards that, and how weird it is that a human would undergo that sort of psychic restructuring in order to receive more story from a game. But, um, uh, you know, besides the fact that we see Cloud Crack here, we see this weird Sephiroth, which I need to ask you about, like, what is this double form that turns into light and has a sword uh, doing? And why is it that you fight just a regular dragon uh, when you first, uh, uh, for the first boss in this uh, time, or excuse me, in this uh, segment, and what is the relation to time? And also, I just, we we can't help but talk about the, the sort of physical assault that uh, Cloud, while out of his mind, enacts on Ares just before she disappears then forever. Uh, and I, I had a couple of comments on that on the pre-show, and I'd, I'd really like to talk about that too. So just to lay out quite a bit, uh, speaking of treasure houses of knowledge and wisdom, let's see what we can we can add to it here. Let's see what we can get up from the Cave of Wonders. Well, yeah, this, so this end scene is one that I did not remember at all. And we definitely should talk about that when we come to it. But okay. I, I, I want to get to talk a little bit about the temple itself as well. The thing that stood out to me playing through it this time was the um, perspectives on space and time, as you said. Uh, the time right through the clock room is uh, in the forefront. And just, you know, things like the ancients sort of drives that home pretty good. Yes. Uh, but, the, but the space, too. I was noticing that that one big room is like the the colors are sort of washed out. There's a little bit of green for ivy that you can climb up and down, but it really it really drives home the idea that you're looking at something that's an illusion, right? Because of the way that space works in that room and the way that your character moves around on the screen, it really forces you to notice that this is an impossible place. Um, it's it's not obeying uh, very hard and fast rules of space or time, and that I think is is also what's a little bit of what's going on with with the Sephiroth um, glowy double image thing, uh, where his he's sort of like projecting his um, form, apparently physical at least partly, uh, but also apparently spiritual at least partly. And I think that's, yeah, that's where I would want to sort of start. And um, what did you think about the, the temple itself? Well, I thought it was interesting. So when you come to the temple, the first thing you observe is an act of violence against the Turks. This Sephiroth, or one of his flunkies, as Cloud calls him, and then acts as one uh, for him by directly giving him the black materia. Um, you, uh, Sephiroth has uh, killed Singh, essentially, dealt him a uh, devastating blow that you get to eventually see through this sort of living consciousness of the ancients in this purple glowing pin sieve-like uh, pit of liquid. They can, it's, it's almost like, 
I mean, didn't this come out the same year as the first Harry Potter? But I guess it came out before the the one with Pinsy, which is the fifth or the sixth one, if I recall correctly. Um, and and it this glowing liquid shows you shows you what has happened in the temple. And so the temple, like you say, is is there's imagery of it being like an illusion and you have this sort of in your face mage in a way you have like there's been sort of an edge of realism to this game in Midgar even though it's sort of in the future and there's magic present uh you know it's got a technological sort of feet on the ground feel and now you've got like hopping wizards that you're following around and this this odd like you said washed up space it looks like an MC Escher drawing and um and then you have this guy who can fly through walls and then you're having a mental breakdown and it's almost like the game is making a commentary on the fact that humans and like sort of inhabit a mental or a psychological space far more than a physical space. Um, oh yeah. I think that is extremely, and also the way that you as the player um, have to mediate between those two spaces, as you say, right? Like your time goes into this game and your attention um, you're the only way that you're progressing the story uh, through investing that. I suppose you could simply read about it somewhere else, but that's definitely not the same, uh, not the same kind of experience at all. The, the exploration um, is, is aided in this case by um, those purple hopping wizard folks, uh, aided quite a bit, right? They, they do provide you with um, free places to save and rest. And so you, if you do need to level up, it's not that hard. It just takes a certain amount of time. Uh, it's also giving you a bunch of different options, right? Because all the weapons here, a lot of them at least, are related to um, stronger attack and less materia growth, seemingly. Uh, and so that's like a new strategy that you can sort of jump into at this point in the game that didn't didn't really exist before uh it's like a it's a trade-off and again a way that maybe if you're really at a loss like you can try something totally new uh the 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 sephiroth um pro, pro, what is it projection or whatever it is uh seems like he can see you watching that when you're looking at that in the purple well thing um it's almost like he's taunting you you know, he, he like flies down into it right after you see that scene and then flies away again. Yeah. And he, I mean, he just does some odd things. He, he also jumps into your dream of Ares after, after she disappears from your life forever, uh, effectively, uh, as far as you know. And, uh, though, I mean, it's so interesting, the language she uses eschatologically, um, like uh, where she says, I'll see you after this is all over. It's like, well, <laughs> what exactly does that mean? I think we're meant to interpret it in one way, but it's open to multiple interpretations. But uh, the Sephiroth character, he's, well, he's, <laughs> he's, he's everywhere. He even, the oddest thing about him, which I, I should have just gotten to this first, is why does he even make that comment? Well, two things. He says, so cold and I'm always by your side when he first manifests. That's very odd. Very, very odd. As if he's like back from the dead, so cold, or the reaches of the unconscious. And I'm always by your side, suggesting that he is like your own mental projection. 
to be interesting why Ares is combating him later on, whether they're both in some way mental projections. Uh, and I mean, they are literally mental projections insofar as they are projected into a narrative on a screen uh, that somebody created, right, from their mind um, or a host of minds. But um, he, when, when Sephiroth comments on the first um, boss fight, and the first boss fight, uh, the dragon appears, um, you're, the temple is rumbling, and you're thinking, and your characters ask, is this Sephiroth? And he goes, ha, 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 it's not me. It's like, what? <laughs> so he's still there and present and watching you, and then you fight a dragon, which, of course, is the first thing you ever fought alongside him. Um, and you're fighting a dragon in a temple with hieroglyphics that show like a meteor coming down, but also there are other hieroglyphics that show like a perfectly balanced state as well. Um, and so I guess that's just a mess of things to say, but uh, it seems more as if Sephiroth is like you are one of his flunkies and he is a part of you more and more. Well, yeah, he in a way is mocking Cloud, but in a way is also mocking the player who's really maybe a better um, counterpart to him at this point because he seems to be watching what's going on just as the player's watching. He seems to control C Cloud just as the player's been controlling Cloud. And he seems to uh, derive enjoyment from this watching, you know, which is sort of the, the end of the game uh, as far as like its purpose is to be enjoyable and make you want to buy more games like that or something like that, you know. And... And yet, uh, he, he says to you that um, he's so cold, right? And I, yeah, I find that a really interesting phrase as well because it's, it could also mean that he's unable to fully uh, enter into the kind of relationships, the kinds of uh, enjoyment that the game seems to promise. And that, that would be like a really negative form of the addiction that you mentioned earlier, right? Like if you continued playing games, even after you no longer wanted to be, that, that would be sort of like what I see going on with Sephiroth. Like he's, he's sort of gone beyond any sort of um, rational purpose and is... Uh, on his way towards, you know, being like a all-powerful supervillain. So that's not great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, he seems like such a like a fallen i like a fallen ideal that you used to pursue. So, insofar as he used to be the hero of the land that every young man wanted to embody, especially Cloud, he served as sort of a ruling idea, and he was like that perfect uh, ideal towards which you strove. And um, then he sort of went crazy, which either he went crazy or Cloud's perception of him uh, got corrupted, possibly due to his failures in life. And he's, it's just like he, I don't really know how to put it. it, um, it it's so abstract. It's as if what he represents is what a person could become if they left the structure of the game in order to start a new game, which despised the old game for being a game itself. 
It's as if he, he wants to leave society and all the glory he was given and its structure and its mortality and even wants to leave his species now, right? He wants to become a god. And he wants to deal the world such a grievous blow. So he's become such a Luciferian figure that he's willing to sacrifice the world to become a god himself. And that that's, that is tied to the idea of addiction. And that one, one tries to reject the idea of being human and replace sort of social interaction and the, the, the container in which all social beings find themselves, the anthill, the, you know, the abstract anthill, which is the pyramid. Um, and, and, and they replace that with something, I don't know, superficial or not just not as substantive, something artificial, something um, uh, substitutive, um, like a drug. And that, uh, that the game then can go from something which is a game and therefore healthy to uh, you can create sort of a, a, a destructive game where you try and destroy the game. And that's a different game. And that seems to be the one that Sephiroth is playing and that you can play too through inappropriately playing this game or potentially any of them. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Like he's an evil player or something like the, the image of an evil player in a way. I also like the, the idea of him creating a, a wound in the earth. That's, that does sound a lot like the picture that Dante paints in his cosmology of hell the inferno being a huge uh hole that is created by uh the by lucifer falling and uh crashing down into the center of the earth and in so doing it pushes up on the other side of the planet uh the mountain of purgatory right and yes. so it's like i think that's kind of what's going on here with sephiroth's fall because it's it's creating basically the storyline that that you're working your way through much like a descent into hell and a ascent of purgatory and he's you know in some sense he is that dragon right he did say he was always by you and in some way uh that dragon represents the the kinds of challenges that are thrown in your path as you're trying to um overtake and stop his his destructive uh purposes and so the, the red dragon there, you know, is sort of the archetypal uh, boss battle. And it's a tough one. It's, it's only a step on the way to fighting Sephiroth himself, though. That's right. And insofar as it is a step along the way, it, it, it partakes of the same archetype as he does, which is that of the antagonist or the step up. Uh, well, I guess the step up the pyramid. I suppose he's the uh, the temple guardian at the top. Like he is what keeps you from your destiny, um, and it is his explicit purpose to provide you with the obstacle necessary that enables you to become the person necessary to li live up to your destiny. And his means of attack with you, which is interesting that he carries a large sword and that he he sort of strikes it about while he's sharing his thought, indicating that his sword, in fact, indicates a like someone with mastery of thought talking to one who is more enslaved, less uh, capable of thinking or articulating himself. Um, that um, what Sephiroth does is he, he, he both a shows you the value of education by saying that this is a treasure house of knowledge, but then B um, 
B, he, he shares that he's, he's now a traveler of the live stream and has now gone beyond sort of normal distinctions. And so he, what he seems to be capable of doing is because he, he is no longer a, a sort of normal physical being, though he does have some physical embodiment, perhaps he's like a parasite on hosts. It's hard for me to say um, exactly um, that he, it's like he's a virus of the mind um, in, in that he is a corrupted ideal. It's like in an ideal that you still follow, though you know that it, it's ill-adapted or, or doesn't serve the world anymore. It's as if then, like, the fantasies you produce, if you're doing that, would be like a dark wood or like a Wizard of Oz in the dark sense or like a, uh, what we get after cloud starts to break apart like a darker version of the world and that in fact one inhabits like a fantasy space that is darker like that it reminds me of the raven as well right yeah yeah he's a he he has a hold on cloud on his consciousness on his imagination which you still need to work out or you know find a way to overcome uh, and purge out of cloud. And so that like, there's sort of these literal battles that you fight, right? It, again, sort of um, temple guardians of various kinds. Uh, first the red dragon, which drops a armlet, right? The dragon armlet armor that like absorbs um, elemental damage, which is really, interesting right it's like there's there's an example of a literal treasure that you get once again um where uh the hieroglyphics and what they portray is um sort of the the information the story treasure at these scenes with sephra but then on your way out um because there's this weird little plot thing with kate sith where since he's a dummy uh he can sacrifice himself without real repercussions. And so he's gonna stay in, he's gonna come in and stay in there and um, acquire the black materia for you. And so your, your job is to escape at this point. So you're leaving, you go through the clock room again and cross at the vertical line, which you couldn't do before. Um, it's now clear and you come to a place where the wall itself of the temple is trying to crush you, right? It's, a, it's like a, an animated um, dungeon which is of course what the whole game is, right? It's like, it's not really gonna crush you. Uh, you're gonna overcome it at some point if you're gonna proceed. Um, but it, it provides that sort of like, it's an unexpected twist and it, it provides that, that sense of danger that apparently we like really want, you know, because we're playing this game. And so, and this one, when you eventually prevail in, in that battle, it drops the uh, the Gigas armlet, which I love because it's like very strong defense, much like the wall has, of course, but it has no materia growth. And so again, there's this like suggestion that certain kinds of strategies are not really gonna pay off in the long run because they, they don't allow for growth. And that's something we've been coming back to with Sephiroth time and again here. Yeah, and it's interesting that we talk about the theme of growth when the black materia, the ultimate destructive materia is first uh, shown. 
it involves destruction of this beautiful sort of museum sort of place in order to produce it. And then it involves an act of destruction of one's own sort of mental unity in order to give it to Sephiroth, suggesting that Cloud is the flunky of Sephiroth and has been serving him this entire time and has thus not known who he was at all or his true role in this story, thinking himself the hero capable of defeating Sephiroth, I guess is what I've been trying to circle around, when in reality he's just the flunky who continues to serve him. He's, he's incapable of even overcoming the mental influence of Sephiroth, even if Sephiroth is just a mental part of Cloud, so weak is Cloud. You know, that's why I think Ares says, be strong. And then he very childishly and uh, sort of maliciously, and it was very shocking because I just played this part of the, the game, starts to, uh, what it appears to be, just wail on Ares. I, I suppose you're supposed to read that as uh, while encountering a, a psychotic break or being controlled by Sephiroth, who has just now used Cloud to destroy the temple uh, and create this black materia that can destroy the world and is now also manifesting uh, Cloud destroying his relationship with Ares, which he had just gotten news from Kate Sith, which is all the more interesting because, you know, Kate Sith is such a liar and a fraud, but also such a beautiful moment too, if you didn't read it ironically, where Ares and Cloud are told that they're a perfect match for each other and they'll live so long. And again, you get that um, moment where they retell or they, they, they reaffirm their future together and the fact that they'll look at this past moment happily, just like when Ares at the um, Golden Saucer suggested um, that they come back there at some point. And so then you have Cloud beating her and then she disappears into a very magical looking forest and is now sort of popping up and down in the same way Sephiroth did, suggesting that maybe... I don't know. I was, I was saying in the pre-show that maybe this is when you enter the secondary world in Final Fantasy VII, that now you encounter the sort of place of your imagination or memories where you, or unconscious where you have to restructure yourself after doing something morally awful and realizing that you are the one at fault and you're the one who has to figure it out. And that seems to be what Baird and Tifa are saying to Cloud and that you have to move forward, but that he does something sort of unforgivable here and that Ares is sort of gone because of him, not Sephiroth. This is something terrible he did. And it has nothing to do with the fate of the planet, but maybe it does. Yeah, the way that these lines of intention start to get tangled, I think is, is very interesting. I come, yeah, I like that you mentioned the, the Kate Sith fortune telling because I, I kind of forgot about that. And if I remember right, she says, uh, or he says to them that their stars are like in perfect agreement. So it's like a kind of astrological uh, explanation this time, which again, sort of like considering that versus the meteor that Sephiroth wants to um, summon, right? You can sort of see that that uh, contrast brought out really nicely there too. And um, in, in going after uh, Cloud, right? Getting at Eris through Cloud, and then um, getting Cloud to give him the black material, right? Yeah, it does seem like Sephiroth uh, is, is kind of sadistic because these are things which he could obviously do on his own, or, or so it would seem. And so it seems kind of um, gratuitous to force Cloud to be the one to do it. it. It must be 
his way of of inflicting maximum suffering upon this uh person that he does not respect that that's how i sort of am forced to interpret it not knowing any any more that could possibly explain it like if there's some kind of story aspect to this where sephiroth you know couldn't take the black materia himself or something like that like that that would also sort of make sense i guess um and and that's sort of like just thrown in there that you know the the temple itself is the black materia and so kate sith makes this heroic sacrifice it's it's kind of mock heroic you know he like trips on his way like um flouncing over to the the altar <laughs> but uh you know he's being very brave and all this and then the very scene when you know as you're describing when cloud has given away the black materia he's had this break where you can see his child self and his adult self separate and in conflict and he's now wailing on Eris, um, although she's saying, you know, don't worry about it. You know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And so she's like forgiving him even in the in the act. It's very dark. And then meanwhile, up above, uh, Kate Sith hops back into the scene. Like Kate Sith part two is now back with you. And oh, I, I shouldn't have come. Like this is a bad time. So there's like this weird humor that's injected in there too. I don't know whether it's supposed to be comic relief or if it's supposed to just, you know, help out if you're sort of uncomfortable with what's going on, sort of distract you from it. Uh, but it is, it's, it's a very gnarly little scene here. Um, a lot is going on and it's, I think meant to evoke a variety of responses, like sort of keyed to the care and, and attention with which the player is willing to uh, invest it. Yeah, and I think I you just helped me to realize that the very attack meteor is the attack of a falling star, right? Or uh, and so that I think represents very nicely what Sephiroth is as sort of a corrupting ideal that still has a hold over you that you have not yet put to bed that can destroy your real life relationships, and that what I think is happening with the Black Materia being the temple is not so much that it's the temple; it's the act of destruction of something so beautiful and ornate and sophisticated which produces the the black material or that onus that anger it reminds me of sort of an I isis attack against those sumerian monuments that it's like you're doing it, it it's sort of like voldemort killing the unicorn right you're doing something so wrong that you produce true malice in the hearts of your enemy or something like that and then you 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 sort of bring that out and i haven't build this part out yet, but you can only really fully manifest that in the right place at the right time, right? That uh, the moment has to be ready for you to maximize the punishment of others uh, or, or, or the people. Um, and so Sephiroth is going to have to use that materia in um, uh, the, the Forbidden City or, or wherever it, where, it's not the Temple of the Ancients, but it's another uh, sort of super special archetypal place that he's going to have to go, that's powerful in the life stream, uh, a scar in the world. Yeah, yeah, the, the idea that he's going to leech power from the planet's pain just seems like very much like what's he's, what he's doing with Cloud and Eris and, and all of that, right? He's deriving joy from their pain, that, um, that very 
uncomfortable thing that you are also doing as the player. <laughs> but ideally, you have a, a higher purpose in mind, and you are not playing the game the way that Sephiroth is playing the game. Although, I you know, would be interested to know how many players there are out there who, for one reason or another, are still fascinated with Sephiroth, even after all of this, you know, because there's tons of big old Sephiroth nerds and fans and people out there um, to this day, I, I think. Uh, that's the sense I get. But in the, in the destruction of the temple, too, yeah, that's, I think, another great example of that, right? He, he derives his end through the simultaneous destruction of something else that's beautiful. Um, and and that, the incredible hubris there, right? The incredible pride and arrogance that he considers himself so much above and detached from, right? Uh, the suffering of, of other people, that in fact their suffering is what strengthens him and the, the destruction of the planet is what's going to, you know, take him to the level of a god. Uh, it's like, in fact, like literally, uh, that that's his actual goal is, uh, you know, is incredibly interesting um, than that people would still admire that because now, you know, they talk it through that way. That sort of sounds like a lot of, you know, historical demagogues and uh, utopias that, that turned out to be dystopias. You know, they, they start with that kind of premise. Uh, and so I, I'm not sure how far to go with the, the historical thing, but it is really interesting that the temple is um, is a pyramid. You know, it has these hieroglyphics, but also at the end of it, you know, it looks like one of those bombed out houses that you get in the in the Great War and the Second World War. Um, those kind of more more modern versions of hell that we have uh, recently, as 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 history goes, recently um, experienced, and that would have been fresh in the minds of uh i think the people making these games as they're trying to like reach out for something that would you know evoke you know ultimate evil ultimate uh, uh destruction and i mean there is something to be said for sephiroth's long leather trench coat very similar to nazi nazi officer apparel and mm -hmm. that's interesting to what extent you're suggesting that the game may represent a fallen ideal that failed that was like an evil god that failed japan uh, the fascist ideal, and that that's what Sephiroth is, and attempting to be perfect and more than human, rather than recognizing, uh, you know, that which is human, and that um, that that, you know, that ideal almost brought the world down, and resulted in the coming of meteor, perhaps being you know sort of a symbol of the dropping of a nuclear weapon. That's very interesting archetypally. Speaking, I, I had never thought of it that way, but I mean, that is even the image on the front of the game, right? A sort of hell star from heaven flying down towards, you know, you. And there will be a good portion of the game where that meteor is just in the sky. <laughs> right, right. It's, I think it's something that is touched on in a lot of the Final Fantasy games, again, there's some motifs here that go way back like to Final Fantasy II, aka 4, uh, where there's the demon wall, there's characters being controlled by other characters, you know, um, not, not able to make their own choices. 
there's also the idea of Medio, they call it in that game, Meteor, uh, that, that's like the ultimate destructive uh, magic. And it's, again, in that game, kind of a red herring because, of course, it, it, um, it isn't something that you actually use, you know, uh, the way that you use other magic. It's, it's like on its own level. Um, I would love to see, you know, what the, uh, what the real, the real, like, people who have played all the Final Fantasies, I'm sure they can come up with lots of other examples. Um, but those, those are the ones that come to mind for me. It's like something that, like Sephiroth invading your dream with, or your vision or whatever it is with Eris in the, in the forest. Um, it's an idea that's clearly, like, haunting and continues to hold captive the imagination of the makers of these games that they're sort of like continually working out in, in repeated versions, this, this final fantasy, right? This, this, uh, idea of ultimate destruction and of ultimate uh, salvation. Oh, that's very good as if they, and that's what dri drives the technology that we want a higher and higher resolution copy of what this final fantasy is. And so we're constantly pushing that forward, both in movies and movie technology and also, video games and that's why we can continue to make and remake the final fantasy because like you said it's uh it's a chessboard it's good versus evil um you know ebony versus ivory on the on the chessboard and you remix it each time and you set the board in a different way and but um it's the same fundamental underlying principles which are fighting against each other so whether it be like say i don't know like the ancient greeks and the persians or, or sort of in the Middle Ages, the Crusaders, the Catholics versus the, um, the sort of Turks and the, and the Muslims, uh, or whether it be Harry Potter versus Voldemort, or the light side versus the dark side, the Empire versus the Rebels in uh, Star Wars, or you know even just dark versus light on a chessboard, that what we like to see played out in greater and greater resolution is evil versus good, indicating Funnily to me, that that is the most real thing in the world rather than the least real thing, as most people seem to pretend. If that's the most interesting thing in the world to play through and therefore embody and also to sit through uh, 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 dramatic representations of all day long and to even have what is called newscast and stories, which are have a narrative and are generally a narrative between good and evil. Um, and that's... It's very interesting. And I do think that this, the technology for this game did drive that idea. Uh, this is the first Final Fantasy on PlayStation, which had the best graphics of any console ever at that time. Um, it was twice as, as good, right? For 32 bits rather than 16 could be represented on the, the screen. And so it, it was a greater, it, it was as if it opened our eyes to the greater possibilities of connection between us and our narrative that eventually we could represent them so perfectly that, um, that I don't know, maybe we would meld with them in a godlike way. Uh, seemed to be the dream that we were following, the alchemical dream. Um, and it is interesting because games do continue to improve how good they look. In fact, I would say many of the environments and games look now better than what reality looks like. Uh, you know, very few imperfections. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm just very interested in uh, how you brought up that point about the sort of succession of Final Fantasies and how the technology continues to be driven uh, and 
and how the same motifs come over and over and get repackaged in different ways. And to what extent that can be final. And uh, yeah. So oh, I'm God. sorry to yeah. say that forever. No, yeah. The, this is, um, this is making me think about the forest again now. So it's like, what else is in that imagination, of course, is, is what's always been there. These arch archetypal images of, of the, the sleeping forest, right? It's like um, the, the beautiful side of nature, that which um, Eris moves through sort of freely now, the way that Sephiroth moved through the, uh, the temple before. And, um, and his interruption there does like strongly hint that you have to confront this thing over and over because it will it will impinge upon it will infiltrate right into the most beautiful places right the most uh, uh, paradisical are always under under threat from it and so this this is like a continual struggle right and the really interesting thing here is how how cloud is like he needs to be persuaded to actually continue the story at this point because he's ready to sort of just throw in the towel after seeing how he was no longer in control of himself. He, he'd rather just kind of um, give up. And it's his friends who convince him that, that he has to see this through. Um, I'm sure, you know, the players glad about that too, because, you know, they want to continue controlling cloud and his party and seeing what happens next in the story. And uh, I had forgotten that this, this whole disappearance thing happens. I forgot all about the fact that the, the Forbidden City and the Temple of the Ancients are two different places. Like I thought Eris was toast at this part of the game, um, but we've got another, at least another week um, because we've got a lot of gameplay before we get there. Uh, there's also a major side quest, which we can do at this point, um, which is the Wutai, the whole uh, having your materia stolen and um, getting it back. And then Yuffie, climbing the pagoda, which looks kind of like a temple. Again, it's like a, another weird sort of humorous um, representation of this, the same process. Uh, so that might be worth doing, taking a little break from these heavier matters and going off and having a vacation in Wutai for, uh, for next week. That's not a bad idea. Uh, I just have to go get Yuffie first. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That that can't be too hard after battling dragons and demon walls and things. You know, it is surprising what can be hard in this game. And that's something I just wanted to bring up just to bring it back to reality for a moment. And I had some serious trouble with this dragon at first, and I had to really question my diligence as a player because I looked at some of the strategy guides and some of the things that they uh, suggested, like cast big guard, and you suggested use Aqualung on the second boss, the wall one, and uh, if I had that enemy, enemy skill and... You know, I didn't have either of those enemy skills because I hadn't explored as much as a player that would have and not been as diligent and acquisitive in my gameplay. And so that affected my options when it came to these tests and reminded me to what extent, you know, a boss is a test within a game that keeps you from moving forward unless you manifest the requisite level of skill. And that as if you have gained the requisite level of character to move on. It's like an ideal education. Right, because if you want the story which you're now addicted to because of sunk costs and that, that uh, you do actually like it, it's touching on these archetypes, which it is with these Final Fantasies, you're going to have to 
face your own failings of character like I did. I lost to the boss the first time and I lost like 30 minutes of work and that actually threw me into emotional dysregulation because I then had to leave Frisbee or Ultimate Frisbee earlier than I expected in order to try and beat the beat that part of the game while also confronting my sub goal of trying to smell the roses better uh, and uh, failing in that because I had to rush so fast through the part of the game. Though I did prepare better for the boss the second time around and the next one, I used a substitute for big guard using just a guard with, or a guard spell barrier spell by Ares uh, with all materia on it. And I used physical attacks against both of those uh, bosses with um, uh, especially red 13 and his plus 10. I, he has a, some sort of garment that gives him plus 10 strength right now. And so uh, I had to, you know, again, confront my own character flaws and how I've been sort of rushing through this game and ask myself bigger, higher order questions like, you know, uh, uh, what am I trying to accomplish here? And uh, how am I, uh, how is my failing in this game and generally failing in my own character? And it's funny because now the character yourself that you're playing now has to ask some questions about himself and face these and is he willing to face them in order to move forward and as the game gets harder it seems like you have to face those questions too how much are you willing to give in order to move forward and i wonder to what extent that's why rpgs are not always the most popular games rather than like say action games that you know require some sort of procedural learning but don't necessarily require that you you dump a lot of time into rote like leveling up and puzzle solving necessarily um to what extent, yeah, it really tests your your ability to be conscientious and continue to move forward towards something you want and to maintain your attention towards a goal yourself. Yeah, this this makes me think again about what Kate Sith is doing there because he, he is crushed by the game. You know, like he is that person who plays it to the point where it overwhelms them. It, it overcomes them it consumes their life you know I, I think he's a really funny example of that but it's definitely a thing uh that people struggle with and I, i'm interested because what you mentioned there these games are popular with certain kinds of people it seems like um there's people who get really really into them and i'm it's making me wonder now about how that is connected with the the secondary world idea that you mentioned going back to tolkien and his role in um, sort of creating this audience way back when, uh, or at least sort of giving them a new kind of commodity to look for, which is like fantasy literature. And then around the same time, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, like massive board games, strategy games like this came out where you role play and those, and then in turn become video games later. But it's really, it's a pretty clear line of descent, I think, that could be explored. and. And how that plays into the um, the psychological like makeup of the the people playing and what kinds of things that they get motivated by is really interesting. And also the the cultural question too that we were touching on, like because these games are are far more popular uh, in Japan than they are in the states um, in terms of like their impact on culture as a whole. They they're really really big. Um, and I don't think that something quite that big happened here as an RPG until like the Pokemon thing came out, which is, I think, a little different because it had a, a slightly different um, uh, marketing and, you know, it's a slightly different kind of game. Um, but, but it's in that same wheelhouse, I guess. It's like finding an, a way to expand that audience uh, even more. Um, 
and I, I would love to like see, I guess if people have studied this to see the numbers there of like what kinds of people say RPGs are their favorites, um, how that's different by geography and culture and things like that, how those impact it. Um, I think that there's just a lot there that's, that's extremely interesting. Oh, and then of course, yeah, the historical aspect of it, right? Like how much that can be traced to um, fantasy literature and, and where those uh, things really caught on and were, were developed. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot there. Yeah, just to throw in a, a hypothesis out there, I would, I would, using the big five aspect scale, uh, suggest that it's probably people who are high in trait openness and potentially low in trait conscientiousness, those who, who are most susceptible to interest in fantasy literature and fantasy gaming, but also most susceptible to getting sucked into it, right? Because um, if, you know, the less conscientious you are, the easier it is to skirt the work that you need to do in order to do whatever you feel like. Um, and so, you know, and so that's an interesting thing to maybe know about yourself, that uh, the thing that gives you greatest pleasure is also very much like a siren, like Dante would say in The Second Dream of the Purgatorio, that it, it, it can also, it can go from that wonderful sort of ideal sort of Aries to this, you know, sickening Sephiroth sort of uh, situation in which, uh, in which everything that was once good is now evil and corrupt and destructive. And um, that's interesting to what extent, you know, a video game has to confront issues that, say, distributors of drugs do, right? Like uh, alcohol salespeople and, uh, and tobacco, because it's not so much that the, the, the game itself is destructive, but because of the level of sort of conscious awareness of the, the people who do often play a game, generally, you know, young people, uh, it can have the effect of a drug on them. Though I, I don't think that that is an appropriate excuse for somebody over the age of 25 who's still addicted. Um. Well, there's, there's a lot there. I mean, I feel like there's more here than the two of us are able to do. And I want to find some people to, to like come on the show and talk about some of these more specialized areas. Um, yeah. Like someone who studies addiction or someone who studies the history of fantasy and, and video games and things like that. Some of these kinds of specialists I think would be really interesting to try to reach out to and, uh, and invite them on for a conversation one of these days. Um, so I'll, I think we should, we should look into that. And uh, my vote is that we continue to play this diligently, but with, with uh, proper balance between it and uh, real life. Okay. Um, I think okay. That's, that sounds that's fair. That sounds fair. And I, but you I do just, need to get Yuffie. I mean, that's that's inexcusable. You've got to have Yuffie on your team by now. Come on. I know. I really need to. I, I was thinking that today after I lost that dragon battle. Um, you know, is that a real loss? Is that a fake loss? It is funny that I did sort of go into my lobster loss uh, hunch after. <laughs> I, I was sort of like down on myself, right? And thinking about restructuring the way I did this and then thinking about restructuring more things in my life so that I can spend more time uh, diligently doing that, which I'm already doing and not, you know, overextending myself. And so it's like that loss in the game was a real loss in time. And so was experienced by me neurologically as a loss, right? Yeah. I hit, hit to my serotonin system, to my balance, a little uh, shot of negative emotion from either my hippocampus or my amygdala, probably both to some extent. 
and uh, because things just didn't work out in the way that I wished for them to. And so I failed. And nature doesn't care for that. <laughs> and so I guess that's actually why we experience negative emotion, right? It's sort of like Mother Nature inside of you saying, nope, bad. And uh, well, you know, I made those adjustments and that was a good thing to, to have done. So in that way, hopefully the materia has grown a little from the experience. Um, All yeah. right, yeah. So for next time, we've got to <clears throat> go on our, our Wu Tai side quests, if possible, and uh, try to recover the materia that's stolen. And then, yeah, like I said, maybe we can give some updates about how the uh, the outlook for this project is with with respect to some guest speakers. And if people have suggestions for that, we should uh, we'd be really happy to hear them. Yeah, and this uh, this upcoming week would actually be a really good time to co to record something like that because of um, Thanksgiving and travel. It's going to be hard for me to I'll do my best to uh, to play. Uh, uh, during these upcoming weekdays, um, but it but it, it's going to be tough. So if we can talk to somebody and uh, a person or two do jump into my mind, that would be very interesting. Also, it would be interesting to have two people at once, like uh, an addiction counselor and maybe somebody specifically who has treated video game addiction issues, and maybe uh, yeah, and not to put too many criteria on it. Anybody would be great. And, um, but, um, also somebody who, who has perhaps studied the history of fantasy, like the people, you know, over at Signum University. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I don't know that I'll be able to play all the way to why to Wu-Tai for next time. So yeah, if we can get a quick turnaround here, but yeah, you know, people are traveling and stuff comes up. So we'll see. We might just have to push it back another week and, uh, do some night school in the meantime, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you are following those projects, we do uh, plan to keep on putting stuff out this upcoming week, at least the first few days. So, you know, tune in if you want to tune out your family. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I think tomorrow, must possibly later in the week, we'll have a new Harry Potter one coming out. And uh, yeah, all kinds of good stuff. So looking forward yep. to it. Yep. And a uh, conversation about free will with uh, Dr. Matt Roos and Daniel Black yeah. too. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, till next time. All right. Good luck. <laughs>